freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Roxana Espos, Palace Shaw, and Light Ali, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Ali. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. So let's keep asking, what is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? These good questions animate our every conversation in our ongoing reflection. We typically open each episode with a poem, our common practice, our moment of Zen, and our ritual announcement that seminar is in session. Today's poem is a classic Benny King piece, Stand By Me, performed by the Uplifting International Group, Playing for Change. No matter where you go in your life, at some point you're going to need somebody to stand by you.
Let's take a moment to reflect on that performance and to consider what it means concretely to stand in solidarity with our brothers and our sisters, with all of humanity in need. So pause the podcast for a moment and meditate on this question. Who do you hope will be standing by you in solidarity and support? And who are you standing by at this moment, on this day, this week, this year? Write it up and write it down if you have a chance, or just think about it for a while, and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. We're fortunate to be joined by the smart and inspiring organizer, activist, artist, Astra Taylor, someone willing to dive into rather than run away from contradiction as she illuminates both our problems and our possibilities in startling new ways. Taylor is a founding member of the Debt Collective and author, most recently, of The Age of Insecurity, coming together as things fall apart. Taylor's work and this conversation is a call to action and an antidote to despair. Okay, here we are. It's so good to see you, Astra Taylor. Thank you for joining us. Oh my God, such a pleasure to be here. Really appreciate your time. Um, You know, these are extraordinary times. Um, I always get a kick out of when people say this is an historic moment. Every moment is historic. Every moment is extraordinary in its own way. But I guess I'd like to start by just, I have such respect for you as an organizer, as a, as a radical thinker. And I guess I'd like to ask you to begin by naming this political moment. How do you name it for yourself and for your comrades? Wow. I mean, this is a the word that comes to mind is heavy. It's a heavy political moment. And we're feeling the weight of all the historical everyday decisions that were made that got us here, all of the opportunities to, to, to change course. You know, I'm thinking, of course, of the, the war in Gaza, which is a misnomer because it's not a fair fight. Um, I'm thinking about all of the people who are suffering right now. I'm thinking about the political establishment um, lining up behind genocide um, and pouring billions and billions of dollars of public money into a a war machine. Um, And I'm also thinking about all of the beautiful acts of resistance happening around the world, but um, just incredible solidarity. Um, And so, you know, I, like so many of us, I look at too much social media and my feed is a mix of just abject horror uh, and, and the one side, and then these inspiring 
um, uh, acts of refusal to be silenced. So, for example, you know, this afternoon, I'm not sure when this will be aired, uh, Columbia University students responded to the silencing of Jewish Voices for Peace and other uh, Palestinian, um, uh, uh, pro-Palestinian groups by <laughs> students coming out with their own groups en masse and saying, okay, well, fine, we're going to fight for divestment. You know, you, you're going to have to take us all down. Um, and uh, I heard today about a, a protest, the Debt Collective, which is a union I just, uh, a union I organized with and helped found a union of debtors being asked to sponsor a co-sponsor a rally calling attention to uh, university investments um, uh, in uh, Israeli apartheid. And so people also making those financial connections uh, to their institutions. So I'm seeing a lot of creative um, acts of rebellion, beautiful acts of solidarity. Um, but uh, I think we're at a, this does feel like some kind of pivotal moment. And I, you know, um, I'm not sure what's going to happen next. Uh, I just know that, you know, public opinion is better than I uh, would have expected. So that's also given me heart. Yeah, I think I think you and I are on the same wavelength because for me, it, it is definitely the worst of times. I mean, a, a pre-announced genocide, which mm. our government wholly embraced, um, sustained attack on women's autonomy, uh, the, the climate falling apart, mm-hmm. proxy war mm-hmm. in Europe, Cold War mm-hmm. in Asia. Mm-hmm. But then I, I take another look and I say, wait, the biggest outpouring against racial discrimination, against racism, white supremacy in history after the murder of George Floyd, mm-hmm. women refusing across the political spectrum to be put into a medieval, you know, um, box and, and on and on. And as you say, I thought that when this war started, I was sure it would take, as it typically does, years for there to be any opposition in this country. Of course, the Global South responded immediately, but I'm really impressed with people tearing the mask off Zionism and understanding that Zionism is not the same as anti-Semitism. Anti-Zionism is not the same as anti-Semitism. So that gives me hope. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm with you, but it's, it's part, it's enmeshed in all of these other crises, right? You know, and this is why people are throwing around terms like polycrises or whatever to name the intersecting uh, dilemmas, you know, rising inequality, fascism, (laughs) the climate catastrophe. Um, And I'm not an accelerationist. I don't think things need to get worse for them to get better, but I do think there is a kind of clarity in in this moment. um, And we're seeing, um, we're seeing people refuse exactly that, refuse these kind of simplistic categories and saying, no, you know, we actually, um, you know, can see that resisting, uh, genocide and calling for a ceasefire is not anti-Semitic. you know, where it's humanist. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think you're right. I mean, I don't want things to get worse because I don't want people to suffer, but I think whatever hand we're dealt, the question always is, what is to be done? What yeah. do we do now? So if Trump were to get reelected, if the 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 dystopic vision that he's projecting were to be, then we just have to rethink again about what what is our job, what is our what is our responsibility? Yeah, some guys said we don't make uh, we we make history, but not under conditions of our choosing. You know, exactly. if, if only, if only, Ex- exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I want to turn to this remarkable book you wrote and came out recently. It's the Massey Lectures in Canada. It's called The Age of Insecurity: Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. And as I reread the book after Gaza, I thought, Wow! I mean, you've named 
the political moment in a very particular way, um, the age of insecurity. And on one level, you're describing the human condition, a condition of insecurity, but you're also highlighting why this would be the age of insecurity. So speak a little bit about that, if you would. Just want to say how much it means to me to hear that the book resonated with you, um, both before uh, this this latest horror and after. And, you know, in part because this is a book I really wrote from the heart. I didn't have a huge amount of time to write it. Um, this is part of it being the uh, me being invited to give the Massey lectures. So, you know, I got a call in September. You're going to be on the road giving lectures by next September. So a year later, and we want to have books in hand. So I just, I only had a few months and that meant I sort of had to write from the gut. Um, and I wanted to write something that would speak to, speak to the human condition, speak to all of these intersecting dilemmas that, you know, a, a capacious enough frame that I could talk about the climate. I could talk about economics. I could talk about education, which is something I care a lot about. I could talk about democracy and organizing. And, and so, you know, it was uh, very instinctual in a way and to, to dive into this frame of insecurity because I, you know, I was like, what do I feel mm -hmm. in this moment um, with all of these catastrophes unfolding and all of these problems on the horizon um, and insecurity. So, so, you know, it's very personal. Insecurity is something I feel as a human being and um, but it's not just personal, it's political. Uh, and so the book Part, the book kind of shifts between these two registers and 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 tries to uh, explore the way that you know our innate inherent human vulnerability, what I call our existential insecurity, which is something beautiful and I think can be the basis of solidarity and and the basis of you know of uh, uh, mutual recognition and 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 actually could be a conduit to a new kind of security, a kind of security based in taking care of each other, um, is exploited under capitalism. And, and I call that manufactured insecurity, right? And so we see the manufacture of insecurity in so many ways from the constant assaults on our self-esteem, you know, which, which keeps the treadmill of consumerism going to uh, the, the ways that we're told that, uh, you know, the only path to economic security in old age is through the stock market. But of course, the stock market is inherently volatile. Uh, the way that we're, um, uh, and the way that policing functions and militarism functions, right? you know, that security can only be achieved through violence. Um, and, and that actually, you know, what happens, of course, is that those systems only undermine our, our security uh, and make us more insecure. Um, and this manufacture of insecurity is profitable. <laughs> it's profitable to people. And that's really what I'm trying to expose, but in a way that underscores, you know, some, what I see as possible yeah. solutions. I mean, one of the things you talk about, it, it, the manufactured insecurity resonated with me so much because I, whenever I, we turn on the TV, I spend my time railing against the advertising. You talk about manufactured. I mean, <laughs> really, there's such a thing as low T. Whoever heard of low T? Suddenly, there's a medication to treat it. And I don't know if you've heard of it, but it means low testosterone. So, you know, the, just, just ridiculous kind of examples of, um, manufactured insecurity. But you also point out that while insecurity is the human condition, we're all, we're all going to die. We're all insecure in some ways. Insecurity is not evenly distributed. And that I think is an important theme yes. of the book. Maybe you say a word about that. Yes. I mean, I think that's, that's, 
know, and, and this maybe comes from my work as an organizer. You want to create an invitation <laughs> to as many people as possible to to join with you because I really believe we need a we need mass movements. We need everyone involved to challenge uh, the status quo. But we cannot lose sight of these differentials of the fact that you know some people suffer more than others, are exploited more than others, are more susceptible to you know. Uh, as prison abolitionists say, to premature mm-hmm. death. <laughs> and uh, and so we are not living in an equal world. You know, so I think this is something that has to be front and center. Everybody is insecure in different ways, but its harshest edge is reserved for those people who are, have historically been discriminated against, who have been dispossessed and are dispossessed, who are poor, who are black and brown, who are trans, who are marginalized. And, you know, that is absolutely you know, central, uh, and I think has to inform our, our political strategies. But part of why I did, you know, come to this frame of insecurity is that I think it is important to recognize how it affects people mm-hmm. who have more privilege or who are further up the economic ladder, because that's, you know, capitalism can, will never let you right. rest. <laughs> you know, even if you, it, it, you know, have a lot comparatively, you know, again, yet yeah, those investments could collapse, right? Your property value could go down. You know, you don't, you know, it's not like there's universal health care in this country. And how do you pass on that right. privilege to your offspring? So I think people are kept, there's, you know, they still, they still feel anxious and it's not, it's not, um, right. and they're right to, because that's the way the society is structured. When there's no safety net, then of course there's going to be no upward limit because, you know, you can never have enough to feel like you're totally secure. And that I, so I think that's important that there is a, uh, a cross-class element to this. Um, and this is why I think it's, an, you know, many of our interests to create a more secure, sustainable, egalitarian world. Because this is, capitalism is, isn't working even for the people it claims to be working for. I mean, right. none of us are safe on a burning planet. <laughs> exactly right. And you, and you talk about kind of the treadmill and you have this kind of chant that everybody has to have chanting continuously in their heads, which is work, consume, save, strive, work, consume, you know, and it's like so sad, you know, to think about yeah. that being the whole rhythm of your life. Right. But, but I think, the, you know, you, you talk about the fact that we have choices and that, mm-hmm. and that, uh, the one choice is to build a, a bunker and a bigger barricade, and the other choice is to somehow reach out to one another. Maybe you e- e- expound on that a bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there are the word security is a word that you know doesn't have the most appealing ring to me, and I think this is part of you know the fact that I I actually came of age politically in the shadow of nine eleven and the war on terror, and there was a lot of toxic talk about security and homeland security and national security. Um, and so for me, in a sense, that that defensive, uh, violent, bunker-esque type of security is, you know, it's dominant in our society today. So, so um, you know, and that is a, the path that we're encouraged, uh, encouraged to pursue. You know, you feel, you feel unsafe, you feel vulnerable. Well, you know, hoard wealth for yourself, you know, call the police, um, build a border wall, all of that. Um, but I think, you know, I don't think we can abandon the concept of security because I want to be secure. I want to feel safe. I don't want, you know, everyone does. We want a roof over our head. We want to know our loved ones are not going to, um, uh, you know, be unhealthy, be vulnerable. Uh, we want to know that, that we can be taken care of and, and we can only do that together. 
<laughs> but, you know, that's the thing. And so, uh, you know, one thing I play with in, in the book is the fact that etymologically, the root, the Latin root of, of the word security and insecurity is, is cura, which means care. And I think that if we could highlight that in our conception of security, that at the heart of security actually needs to be care, care of not just our fellow human beings, but actually the natural world and the, and the uh, more than human world, you know, that's a kind of security, it seems to me worth, worth striving for. Um, you know, and, and it's just bullshit when we're told that we can't afford that, or actually that it's risky to let other people be secure. What? Because they won't, they won't work hard enough. They weren't, right. they weren't, you know, the, the wheels will fall off the economy and, and the, the treadmill will grind to a halt. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> that, and right. actually that might be a good thing a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, the, the part of this is so much linked to toxic individualism, which dominates mm. so much of the way we think of things. So when we talk about healthcare, we, Basically, we're talking about stay healthy. When we're talking about yeah, safety, we yeah. say own a gun. But actually, safety would be such a different matter if no one owned a gun, including the the cops, the biggest ga street gang in Chicago. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we'd be a lot safer if everybody disarmed. Um, but I also think of it in terms of, you know, people hate, many, many people resist the idea, and certainly the powers that be resist the idea of, universal health care. But when I get hurt in a car accident, I want there to be a good hospital nearby, fully staffed. So there's this contradiction, right? That yeah. we, we, we want the we want the community to embrace us when we're in trouble, but there's so much energy to not embrace anyone else. And I think it's racialized also. I think it's racial. It is. It is. Yeah, you're exactly I, I mean I just think that that's exactly exactly right. And we have to break out of that and, you know, remind people that, that there are other ways of organizing things. And I think insecurity, this is, you know, again, a major part of the book is that I think actually recognizing our shared insecurity can be part of that process. But, you know, we have to organize to manifest that potentially collaborative and solidaristic understanding of insecurity because, and, and right now, I think the right wing is doing a a, a far better job of tapping into people's fears, tapping into people's insecurities, you know, and saying, okay, yeah, you feel unsafe. Well, guess what? That's because of immigrants and right. professors teaching gender ideology. And so, yeah, you need cops, you need, you need, um, uh, you know, you need uh, those, that border wall, you know, you need uh, to, to fight for what's yours. And so we have to really, I, you know, I think to me, the left does not talk, enough about people's feelings and their right. their vulnerabilities you know we often make very you know try to make sort of rational arguments um you know and uh and and so this is also my you know one thing i'm trying to do in this is take a lesson from my organizing with the, the debt collective and say you know economic issues are also always emotional issues you know like these uh, like people are we're feeling beings <laughs> and so we actually have to we have to politicize feelings um, in a way that's progressive and liberatory and, um, and can actually, you know, help us uh, because the right wing is, is busy doing the opposite. Bring in for people who don't know the Debt Collective, which is just an extraordinary um, effort that you've been involved in uh, organizing and, and that if people don't know about it, they must. So say a word about the Debt Collective and the emotional aspect of No, thank you for that invitation. So the Debt Collective is 
the world's first union for debtors. So we're small and we have big ambitions because unions, I mean, unions aren't where we want them to be in this country, but you know, they um, are much bigger than us. <laughs> but we've got our roots in Occupy Wall Street where uh, people, people began, and I, you know, I was, I was part of this. We, we began talking about our debts. We began talking about the fact that we had taken out student loans. We couldn't pay that. We couldn't pay our rent that we owed money to um, hospitals for, emergencies uh, and that we couldn't see a path forward, you know, that, that we were drowning in debt. Meanwhile, the banks had just gotten bailed out after um, tanking the economy because they had pushed subprime mortgages on mostly black and brown homeowners. Uh, and, you know, so there was this glaring double standard, right? They commit massive financial fraud, you know, and, and um, are rewarded. And here, we are ordinary people who really did nothing wrong, just tried to go to school, went to see a doctor, want to not be living on the streets or drowning in debt. Um, and what we realized was that, well, I, you know, hold on, you know, what social movements, one thing social movements do is they, they actually turn up oppression into strength, right? Mm -hmm. That's what, that's kind of one-on-one, you know? Uh, but then we thought, well, not, in, in the case of debt, it's actually really literal because your debt is somebody else's asset. It's on the balance sheet of that bank. It's on the balance sheet of that utility company, of that credit card company. So your, your, your oppression actually is a source of power, but only if we organize and we can wield it collectively. Um, part of what appealed to me about debtor organizing from the start too is it's a quick jump from saying, I have student loans I can't pay to, oh, that's because I, there's not free public college. That's because education is a commodity. Mm. You know, I have a medical bill I can't pay. Well, that's because we don't have nationalized health care in this country. So it gets us to the state and what the state actually owes us, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So it turns us from actually debtors into creditors of a sort. Like, actually, I think I'm owed this stuff. I'm entitled to these basic social goods. Um, and so we thought, you know, wow, this is a condition shared by so many people. A hundred million people in this country have medical debt. It's a leading cause of bankruptcy. Wow, you know, when we start talking to them about their financial lives and how stressed out they are and how overwhelmed they are and, and show them a path forward and say, Hey, together, we might be able to get this debt canceled and then build the political power to actually maybe win a different, uh, healthcare system. Uh, that's powerful. And, and it's, it, you know, to go back to your question, it's, it's not just about math. It's about morality. It's about people's aspirations and visions and dreams for a better world. It's about, talking to people about the fact they feel ashamed, they feel afraid and getting them to get out of that bunker mentality of thinking, okay, well, I've got to pull myself up by my, up by my bootstraps and, and inviting them to join a movement. So, you know, 10 years of, of debtor organizing and we've, we've had some big wins. We've had some big losses. <laughs> That's what, you know, we've had some uh, uh, successes and setbacks, but you know, it's really, it has just taught me uh, a lot and, and, you know, definitely um informs this this book and this you know and, and my conviction that we have to talk to people holistically right like um uh and we have to uh tap into that vulnerability and try to channel it in a in a constructive you know, I, direction because people yeah, no, yeah. it really it really i was impressed with how you keep your freedom dreams and your utopian goals and your abolitionist politics in the forefront. But still, reading this book, I learned so much about economics. And I thought, 
and I wanted to thank you for that because I feel like a complete uh, idiot. But what you what you really outline is that math does have uh, math, statistics, all these things actually do have a human beating heart if you find it. But but because you taught me so much, there's one thing I'd like you to 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 tell all of us, teach all of us. And that is when you talk, the part where you talk about the Magna Carta and the, and then you talk about the charter of the forest that absolutely blew me away because, um, I just had never thought of it like that. And I didn't even know about the charter of the forest. Maybe you could talk a bit about that. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, that, that was the, so you're referring to the second lecture of the second chapter, which is in a way the nerdiest. And it was the one, you know, I was 8,000 words into it. And then I yeah, was like, no, what I, am it was, I doing? It was nerdy. <laughs> like, yeah, it was going nerdy, into this. it was absolutely enlightening <laughs> for me. So nerd on. Yeah. So what got me into this chapter and that history, well, two things. One is that I retell the history of capitalism in the book in different ways, uh, trying to emphasize the, the central role of insecurity to the shift to a market society. So one, one point I make, and I, I think it's really important, is that insecurity is not an unfortunate byproduct of our efficient capitalist system. You know, oh, it's the price we pay for all of this growth and all of this wealth. No, <laughs> it's actually a core product because if you're not insecure, then you're not going to be as exploitable on the job. In fact, you might not be willing to, to work for a wage. And the history of capitalism shows that the first thing was that happened was the severing of, of peasants, of commoners, off once common lands, off the commons, uh, so that they could be pushed into urban slums and, and turned into the proletariat, into the working class. So once they're severed from their the land, once they're severed from their livelihood, they're insecure, they're made insecure, and then they have no choice but to sell their labor. Um, so insecurity is really right there at the genesis of market society. And we see this reverberating in the way that the leading political figures today talk about workers and the fact that worker insecurity is actually important to maintain because otherwise people won't take demeaning low-wage jobs, right? This was a whole discussion about interest uh, interest rates. So the commons is a really important part of the story I'm telling. And that is part of, of what interested me in, in the Magna Carta. So most people who, I guess, you know, took high school history or uh, a few college classes probably know the Magna Carta as the great founding document. It sometimes is considered a, an early example of human rights in Canada and in the United States. It's sort of held up as this taproots of liberal democracy. So essentially, these barons rebelled against an oppressive king and said, hey, no, you have to protect our rights, uh, which, you know, uh, include basic sort of civil rights. You know, you shouldn't be, we should have, be, have the right to have a jury of our peers. And so anyway, <laughs> it's kind of very mythologized. Uh, and the Magna Carta actually didn't last very long because the, this kind of unsavory pope and the monarch got together and were like, you know, F that, no way, we're not going to give these guys basic rights. So it lasted, it just was like a blink of an eye. But there was this other document, the Charter of the Forest that you mentioned. And that was a document that actually lasted, it was in place for hundreds of years. And this Charter of the Forest said, Peasants have customary rights to the commons. A widow can gather her estivers, her kindling. You know, people can graze their livestock and fish in the streams and that, you know, that peasants have the right to subsistence. And peasants fought and defended those rights for centuries, you know, slowing down 
what's known as the enclosure movement. So the beginning of, of market society when lands were enclosed. So I just think it's that's really interesting in its own right that the Magna Carta is revered and remembered and given all this credit as this, you know, the beginning of democracy and the chart of the forest that actually was fought for and lasted for centuries is basically erased from history. I mean, I've, I've spoken to historians who are um, experts on the Magna Carta who are like, oh yeah, you know, oh yeah, the chart of the forest. Like I kind of heard a reference to that, but no, I mean, in terms of the weight in people's lives, you know, uh, the, the, the second one was really meaningful. So why did these interest me? <laughs> because they are the root of a, a right we actually possess today, according to international law and many domestic constitutions, but that we never think of. And that is the right to security. It's sometimes phrased as the right to security of the person. Well, I hang around with a lot of activists and we go around chanting about how we have the right to free speech. We have the right to peacefully assemble. We have freedom of religion. I've never heard anyone at a march go, I have the right to security. <laughs> and part of that's because we've taken the Magna Carta view of that right to security. We interpret it as a negative right, which, which is a way of saying a right to be protected from the state. And, you know, we need protection from the state, from a tyrannical state. So just like those barons back in the 1200s were seeking protection from a tyrannical king. So that's their, that's a conception of security. But the chart of the force points to a better, I think, richer conception of security, which is the right to the security of the commons, the right to subsistence, right? The right to being connected to, to the, the means of survival. So we can just imagine that today it's not necessarily the right to glean, but the right to healthcare, right? Or the right to a living wage and, you know, the right to survival. So you need, you know, you need protection and provision, protection from, from the state or from the tyrant. And you need provision, those positive, what, what are called positive rights in political philosophy. Uh, so I, you know, go back to that history, but then through the writing of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and there's just this like ghost of this positive conception of security that keeps kind of coming up as mostly mm -hmm. socialists fight for it. <laughs> and it keeps being suppressed as, as that history is erased. Um, and I, I, you know, what I wanted to do with that chapter was say, this is actually a right we should take seriously. It's on the page. It's in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Goes back to the Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest. It's in many domestic constitutions. We have a right to security. Let's not let them tell us that it's just purely negative and that it's just purely defensive. No, it's actually a right to the stuff we need to live. And so it was a really fun chapter to write because I got really into all this legal history. And, uh, and I think it's actually, I think it's a really strong case. I think this is a right we have. It's never enough to just have rights, but we are all entitled to security. And let's make that mean something. And, and one way that you that I thought about it as I was reading, and, and you make this point explicitly, so there's political rights, and it's also there are economic rights. There are rights to live and rights. So you, you, you bring it under the banner of security, which is in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. But it's also, um, when we think about it, the right to have a union, the right to have a living wage, the right to have a guaranteed income, the right to have food. And all of that is economic rights, which are wiped away in our kind of obsession with the political rights um, of the Magna Carta. Yes. And, you know, you actually just echoed FDR, who, you know, famously proposed a second bill of economic rights. So economic rights are, are precisely those positive rights. Um, so often we, you know, call these negative rights political or civil rights. And then there's positive economic and social rights. And what 
what FDR said, and I quite liked his formation was, you know, he said all of the rights he enumerated in his proposal for a, for a bill of economic rights, which was precisely, you know, the things you just said, the right to uh, uh, a good job, to education, to housing, all these things. He said all together, those spell security. And so security is, you know, a multifaceted thing. It's not, it isn't, there's, there's not just one aspect to it, um, but that if we could manifest all those rights, yeah, we'd have a baseline of material security that, that would, you know, as, as he also, he connected the dots well saying, you know, and that, that's also fundamentally about freedom, exactly. <laughs> that freedom isn't the absence of those things. It's actually the presence of those things. Um, but it was just, it was fascinating to me to realize that myth making, which I think we're always having to undo, right? Like the Magna mm-hmm. Carta didn't mm-hmm. last very long, <laughs> you know, and these, these, the founding fathers and all of these uh, folks and many reactionaries have just, you know, imbued it with this this meaning and significance that is completely out of step when you juxtapose it with the the chart of the forest which is just so much cooler it sounds cooler yeah it is and and i <laughs> i really felt that in that chapter but throughout the book you're pulling the you're you're destroying the myths that make us think that we're free in ways that are actually entangling and we're and ways that we're not free i mean so so you're taking the mask off the kind of um unfreedom and you're showing us what what's there um and and i really i guess i want you this this uh podcast is subtitled uh, a seminar on freedom and i guess i'd like you to talk a bit more as we come to an end about your ideas of freedom and what your conception is of uh, what it means to be free and what your freedom dreams mm, are. Mm, oh my gosh, such a good and, question. And, and, and even, yeah. even even your North Star, I mean, the North Star yeah. of the Debt Collective. But but I know that that part of what I try to do all the time in my own life and in my organizing is to is to nourish our freedom dreams and to to allow them space to grow and to push back the imaginative horizon a bit. And I'd just be interested in you because I think you're so wise and so smart and such a great organizer. And I just love to hear you riff a bit on your freedom dreams. Oh, you are so nice. This is such a mutual admiration society because right back, right back at you. And you know, it's, I mean, definitely my first thought is, you know, not freedom from, but freedom with, (laughs) you know, that we can't, we're not free alone. I don't even, you know, what does it mean? (laughs) I don't, don't, you you can't, I can't even imagine a, a life that's not interconnected, right? That's it. It, to me, that is just, it's scientifically the fact we're all um, interconnected. So we have to think of, of freedom with, um, but I do think, uh, you know, security, these things, you know, not having, you know, how can you be free when you're, you know, worried about the next meal, when you're worried about um, the, the, you know, your ability to stay house, like that, that is absolutely um, not freedom you know, as I understand it. So I think through that sort of social provisioning, we will make everybody more, more free. And then it's like, oh, wow, if we actually could have that, wow, then what could we do? You know, so, you know, one way I often think about, uh, one way I often think about the questions of, of democracy and liberation is just that like right now, given the way our society is structured, we just, we're grappling with the most boring questions. <laughs> you know, it's like, should billionaires have the right to destroy the planet <laughs> to become trillionaires? And it, it, I mean, I'm like, no, the answer is obviously should be no. Obviously we have to build the power to, um, to stop them. 
And so it's like, you know, so we're still grappling with things of like, well, can you be free? Uh, you know, is freedom really the right to compete in a market when there's no social safety net? Um, uh, you know, like that's a boring question. Like the answer should obviously be like, no. Um, and, and so my, my utopian horizon, you know, is basically like, let's solve some of these obvious boring problems so that we can ask those really interesting ones. Like, yeah, what is human freedom? <laughs> what, what would that be? Um, uh, and so, you know, that's, I don't, you know, so to me, my, my North star in a way is getting to a point where we can wrestle with all of these more, uh, interesting, uh, dilemmas. And, you know, I named some of them in the, in the fourth chapter of this book, uh, when I'm, in, where I'm talking about the climate crisis and it's like, wow, if we could start addressing, you know, the fact of, of climate change and, and just leave some of these fossil fuels in the ground and, and put ourselves on a, a more stable course, then we could wrestle with really interesting things like, yeah, how will we make space for other, other species? <laughs> like maybe in our democratic processes, you know, how do we actually draw boundaries of decision-making when we know that ecosystems don't care where our borders are? I mean, these are like, these are the questions I guess uh, I'd love to uh, see us wrestle with. Those are the sorts of philosophical debates that I, I think we'd be having if we were more, more free. And I don't have answers to those questions, but I guess to me, like it's the, it's a, a nerdy vision of utopia, which is let's fucking feed each other. Let's house each other. Let's have healthcare because actually there are really complicated democratic questions uh, that just like aren't on the table under the current economic and political arrangement. I don't know if that made sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, it makes perfect sense. But I, I also think we, we're back, in a sense, to toxic individualism. Mm -hmm. You know, if we if we talk about ethics always as individual virtues and never as social ethics, mm -hmm. we get tangled up and lost. If we talk about freedom as my right to do anything I want, then we lose the idea of social freedom. I'm thinking of um, you may know the book by Norman Garras, the political philosopher in England, he has a book called The The Contract of Mutual Indifference. Mm. And the idea in, in the subtitle is uh, Political Philosophy After the Holocaust. Mm. But the idea is when, when you're cut, I don't bleed. And I won't help you. And I then have to assume that you won't help me when I'm in crisis. And that creates the kind of insecurity that you hone in on in such a brilliant way. But I think that contract of mutual indifference and he argues that it's a contract we've bought into in the West. And it's a huge mistake because it'll kill the planet and it will kill all of us 100%. at the same well, time. When we see this, you know, you asked about freedom dreams and the debt collective. And I think our our work really is about liberation and, and collective liberation. Um, and part of the obstacle we're dealing with is that a lot of people, just like you said, you know, like, hey, you're cut, you bleed, I don't. It's like, well, you know, yeah, you're in debt. I'm not, you know, what's it, wh why should I care if you are freed from that? And I, and, you know, so one case we're trying to make is that this really is actually about freedom, right? You know, debt over the centuries has been used as not just a tool of profit accumulation, but of racial domination, <laughs> you, like going back to the history in this country of, of sharecropping and redlining and of social control. And, you know, they, uh, they being the right wing are not shy about this. So some of the objections to student debt cancellation were just, you know, incredibly blunt. How are we going to recruit poor people to join the military if we cancel student debt? How are we going to retain workers in these crap jobs 
if we free them from their debt. And then, you know, there was one lawsuit from a from Cato, the libertarian think tank, trying to block Biden's debt cancellation plan. And it said, this narrows the racial right. wealth gap, right. <laughs> you know, um, and helps black people. You know, we can't have that. And so what they said was sort of what we had always been pointing to and maybe sounding like we were conspiracy theorists, which is, you know, no, this isn't just that they're making money, but you're the insecurity and and poverty that results from uh, our economic dependence on on debt um, is is about keeping people in line and making them less less free. And, you know, so. The fight for debt abolition is not just about debt. It really is about freedom and democracy and, and helping people live the lives they want to want to lead because there are so many people right now trapped in jobs they don't believe in um, because they need to pay their loans back. Um, and so in a very, you know, I think immediate level, uh, you know, people, um, you know, we want to see a world where people can graduate from law school debt free and then they can go work as public defenders instead of going to work for Exxon Mobil. Um, and then once we're there, then again, we can have these bigger, we can be more ambitious, <laughs> you know, then it's like, Oh, I don't have debt. Maybe I shouldn't work at all. <laughs> I don't know. But you know, that's uh, to me, I see our work really, it is, it is about, it is about liberation and that liberation is both material and imaginative because once you're free from those debts, yeah, you can start imagining a different life, a different future for yourself for your community. We could start talking about funding things in radically different ways, reorienting our society and our economy. Um, you know, well, uh, well, making a real sort of immediate difference in people's lives when we get their debts canceled. Well, Astra Taylor, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real honor for us. And um, you've helped us expand our freedom dreams. So really appreciate that. If you're, if you can come to Chicago sometime, Roxana and I will host you at the Pilsen community bookstore. We'll, t we'll take you to women really? and children first and you can stay with me and Bernadine. So it's an invitation, come to Chicago and we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. All right. Well, the people are hearing this on the podcast because I have another book out in March. So I might be Please inviting do. myself. Please do. We would love to have you. <laughs> yeah. I'll send you I a link. Thank okay. you so much. All right. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah. Okay, folks, let's swim as hard as we can toward that distant shore, shimmering and just visible on the far horizon, that land of joy and justice, peace and freedom. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Pallas Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life an act of coming together in solidarity, in common cause, in mutual aid, as things fall apart. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.